Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, the Supreme Court upholds an Ohio procedure designed to prevent vote fraud. And we look behind liberals' use of a nonprofit alliance to promote liberal voter outreach, uh, excuse me, nonpartisan civic participation. This is the Influence Watch podcast. On Monday, the Supreme Court decided Houston v. A. Philip Randolph Institute, which upheld the state of Ohio's procedure for determining how to remove from the electoral rolls the names of voters who've relocated or died. The state mails a card to the registered address of all voters who did not vote in a given federal election, asking them to confirm that they still live there, and then removes those who fail to reply and also fail to participate in any voter activity, that's voting, updating an address with the voter registrar, or signing petitions, in the four following years. Liberals, led by the A. Philip Randolph Institute, an AFL-CIO-backed group for African-American union activists, said this procedure is too onerous and violates federal election administration requirements. In a decision that supported the efforts of conservatives to ensure fair and accurate elections free from fraud, the Supreme Court disagreed by five to four, with Mr. Justice Kennedy, as usual, providing the key swing vote. This provoked the Washington Post to complain, quote, states should be encouraging more civic participation, not less, close quote. Laying aside the fact that Ohio actually created a relatively trivial penalty for years of civic non-participation, we here at InfluenceWatch.org found that phrase, civic participation, familiar. The Funders Committee for Civic Participation is a prominent convening of left-wing donors and a funding pass-through group for left-wing activist groups that are interested in manipulating American voting procedures, and civic participation is their euphemism for liberal voter registration, liberal get-out-the-vote efforts, and liberal leadership training that the Post, knowingly or unknowingly, chose to use. So, uh, Mike, let us start with the Supreme Court decision itself. Give us a little background on that. Sure. Uh, so, f before we get to the Supreme Court decision, let's talk about the state of the voter rolls. The when you go vote, there's you know the the uh, the election election officer there with the with the poll book, and you sign your name or you show your ID depending on whatever state you're in. Uh, well, in 2012, the Pew Charitable Trust, which is a fairly left-leaning organization, I think we can fairly say, uh, conducted a, a review, uh, and they estimated that as many as one in eight, 13% uh, of voter registrations currently on the books, or on the books then, uh, were either invalid or inaccurate. Now, let's stop for, I gotta stop you for a second. So it's about 13%, that was their nationwide estimate. Yes. That means that some states, which are pretty squeaky clean on this, are way below 0%, and some well, you can't, states, you can't be below zero. But you, sorry, they may, you mean well, below? You mean maybe below thirteen, sorry. as opposed to are, are in the are closer to zero percent, thirteen percent, and then some other states that have, shall we say, certain histories of interesting vote arrangements. Illinois somehow leaps to mind. I one one would immediately suspect Illinois, although I'm not sure whether they broke it down by state. <laughs> but so if this 
Clean states are in the very low single digits. Illinois is probably well above the 13% margin, so maybe, who knows, 15, 20. Well, uh, and early last year, we found some real-world evidence of a couple of these uh, of these improper voter registrations. Uh, a, the Trump administration's then nominee, now the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, uh, was found by media outlets. This is when Trump was making his rather outlandish and almost assuredly false claims about the scale of improper voting. Uh, the, the, the press went looking to see if any members of his uh, administration had duplicate registrations, and sure enough, Mnuchin did. Now, uh, how did he get, end up with a duplicate registration? Well, he, the answer is he moved out of the state of New York. Uh, the, when you move out of state, you are supposed to inform the voter registrar of the state you are leaving, hey, I'm leaving, because the states don't talk to each other. Uh, so when I moved out of Virginia to come to, Was- to, come to Washington, D.C., I informed the voter registrar of, uh, I believe it was the city of Williamsburg, uh, that, hey, you need to cancel my voter registration because I'm moving out of state. If I had moved within the state, the state would say, would automatically can't, the Virginia Board of Elections would have automatically canceled my Williamsburg registration and moved me to, say, Fairfax. Uh, But moving out of state, Washington, D.C. doesn't talk to Virginia about red, you know, this guy, you know, Michael Watson born on this date with this other identifying information uh, just moved into the state. Anybody who matches that on your rolls, Virginia looks down and says, "Oh, yep, cross off the cross him off the the Williamsburg list." Now, you're you're supposed to send, and in Virginia at the time, it was on the back of your voter card. Uh, the uh, a notification to the voter registrar that you have moved. Sixty percent of people don't do this. <laughs> um, in, in fact, in fact, the other. The other way that states figure out that you have moved out of state is by your change of your postal address, filing that, filing that form with the Postal Service, letting mm. the Postal Service forward your mail. Uh, apparently, 60% of people don't file that form. Mm. Uh, I was going to say, I can't believe 60% bother to talk to the voter registrar. Uh, yeah, no. It's six, so 60% of people are, are not informed. Uh, the, uh, the other state is not informed. Uh, so as in the case of Mr. Mnookin, uh, he had voted in 2008 in New York and had not voted since. He had subsequently moved to California, was registered to vote in California, and voted. Uh, the most recent data they had as of that point was that he had voted in the 2016 primary. Um, the, you know, there's nothing illegal about this on Mr. Mnookin's part, but it shows the, the difficulty that our current system has in maintaining an accurate poll book. Uh, if somebody as prominent as Stephen Mnuchin, now a cabinet member, at the time a fairly prominent businessman involved in the entertainment industry, uh, could somehow have be living in Los Angeles completely oblivious to the fact that he still had a te- technically valid voter registration in New York City where he had moved from. Yeah. Now, to be fair, of course, there are plenty of left-of-center groups that fight nearly every effort to clean voter rolls of in states. Sure, and that's uh, what and that's what we had here in Ohio. If yeah. in fact under Ohio's rule, uh, what would have happened to Mr. Mnookin after he didn't vote in 2010 is they would have sent the they would have sent the the postcard sometime between 2010 and 2012 saying, "Hey, do you still live here?" He obviously wouldn't have replied because he's not there anymore. And then, uh, you know, after the after the uh, 2012 and 2014 cycles, he would have been taken off the New York City poll book, and he would have still been a perfectly valid 
perfectly legal voter in California where he actually lives. <laughs> yes. So, uh, well, um, the uh, it just to repeat then. So it takes two full federal election cycles, which come every two and, years. Right. And and Ohio actually gives a little bit more than the statute demands as a bare minimum. Ohio goes the full, you get the full four years, not just the the election days. Yeah. And the, and, and and also, the statute and, you're referring to, of course, is the federal statute right. um, that all of this takes place right. under and explains why the U.S. Supreme Court was in the uh, looking at all this in the first place. Right. So, uh, so the so the 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 federal law, the National Voter Registration Act, as modified by the Help America Vote Act, uh, stipulates the following, which I am quoting directly from Samuel Alito's majority opinion: A state may not remove a name on change of residence grounds unless the resident either a confirms in writing that he or she has moved. This is the I sign the back of my voter card saying I've moved out of state, or I go to the postal service and say I've moved out of state, or B, fails to return a pre-addressed postage, postage prepaid return card containing statutorily prescribed content and then fails to vote in any election during the period covering the next two federal general elections. This is what Ohio did. Literally, uh, Justice Alito literally says they followed it to the letter. That if you missed, you know, let's say you missed the 2012 general election. Uh, I don't know how you would miss the federal general election if you had any concern about uh, public policy in a major swing state, even if you were going only to protest vote or only to vote the down ballot. Um, the uh, So then the Ohio government would send you a, a prepaid postcard that says, hey, essentially, I don't know the exact text, but something to the effect of, hey, do you still live here and or do you still wish to be registered to vote? Sign it, send it back. Yes, you're done. You're set for the next cycles. If you then voted in the 2013 municipal elections, all the major states in Ohio, I looked this up, Cincinnati, Columbus, uh, Toledo, Cleveland, all do their municipal elections in odd years. So if you voted in an odd year municipal election, clock resets. You vote in the midterm, clock resets. If you didn't, if you skip both of those, okay, you still have one more cycle. So that would be 14. Uh, you skip the 15 municipal elections. All, the, all this time, you're, you haven't told the voter registrar, yes, I still live here. You haven't signed a petition for a candidate. You haven't signed a petition to have your street rezoned for street cleaning or whatever uh, that otherwise confirms to, this, to the municipal government that, yes, you still live there. And the way that our elections are administered in fact, the way that elections are administered, so far as I am aware, in every in every democracy, where you live matters because at least it determines how you vote for your municipal, which you know, municipal government you vote for. Uh, so, you missed your fifteen municipal elections, sixteen general election. You show up at the polls, you're on the rolls, you're good. If you miss, it's only when you miss that election that the government decide that Ohio's government decides. Okay. We've tried to contact you either by holding an election or by sending you this card for six years, and we have heard nothing from you. We reasonably suspect you've moved out of state. Yeah, or died. Or, or passed uh, away. And yet, places like the Washington Post treat this like the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, bringing the entire clavern down to keep folks from voting. 
yes, the 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 Washington Post, of course, editorializes that this is horrible and that this is preventing civic participation, even though it seems to be placing a mild restriction. Because, of course, if you missed the 2016 general election and you are horrified by the current government and you say, oh, crap, I need to vote again, uh, then, uh, you know, you go online and check your registration and it says it's invalid. Well, guess what you can do? You can register to vote again <laughs> without pen without penalty or without penalty or hindrance. Um, so, again, it's a trivial uh, it's it's ultimately a trivial penalty for non-participation if you are somehow improperly, re you know, you are a valid voter, you are not Mr. Mnookin having moved out of state but ne neglected to inform the state of New York or the state of New York having neglected to take your notification into account and uh, otherwise going along blissfully with your life. Uh, if you were somehow a proper voter who just didn't participate for the better part for more than half a decade and then decided to start participating again, the penalty is, is ultimately trivial. You just re-register to vote. Yes, which the left has also made an extremely easy thing to do uh, and also added things in some places like universal registration where everyone is automatically registered and in almost all places at this point having very extensive early voting, uh, which is itself a somewhat dubious practice, plus, of course, well, extremely I've, easy I've, I've, got, I've, I've got nothing against early voting because I do it all I, I, In Washington, D.C., I do it for every federal general election, so... Well, we, we, the, it's a debatable, a debatable issue. I, let's put it this way. I don't think... I don't trust the left's motives on it, I will admit myself. Um, they're... Uh, and, and, well, and, of course, all vote by, you know, vote by mail, elect, you know, I... I I am of a school of thought that says that ultimately electoral administration has much less of a partisan valence one way or the other that partisans think it does. Uh, you know, at least one sitting Republican member of Congress from Montana is probably only in Congress because of vote, because of all vote by mail, uh, because of course he got in an altercation with the reporter after 80% of the votes had been cast. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, um. Well, so it, it, things can happen both ways. Of course, that's the real argument against the right, right, right. Is, is, that is, you is, should is that you should have campaign. everything up to the up to voting day? Yes. Yes. The uh, but um, well, so when uh, some left wing outposts like the Washington Post gets on its high horse to complain about this, they uh, they hang around themselves the noble mantle of just desiring more civic participation. But as we noted at the, at the start of the show there, that is a phrase that has a certain echo for us at influencewatch.org. An echo that suggests a partisan valence, yes. Yes. And that is because of a very little-known group um, called the Funders Committee for Civic Participation. Now, uh, what can you tell us about them? So the Funders Committee for Civic Participation is a you 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 we were discussing in the pre-show a, a the technical term donor affinity group. Yes, that's in in the in big philanthropy. That is, say the folks with because funder, 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 Funders Committee is is a project of a group called Neo Philanthropy, which is a, uh, a what what we sometimes call a pass through entity. It's a foundation. It's not a foundation, but a public charity that takes money in from big philanthropy foundations like Ford, Open Society, uh, the various Buffett family, uh, Buffett family philanthropies, the Rockefeller philanthropies, uh, and then passes it out to various uh, liberal activist groups uh, 
after, you know, organizing it and convening the donors and saying, what do we want to do? Yeah. And I would throw out real quickly that, of course, when it is conservative donors that use a pass-through like that, this is the Horrible evil, dark money. Horrible, dark horrible money, dark, dark money. Dark, dark, money. dark, very dark. I would be willing to bet that there is no mainstream media outlet in history that has ever applied that term to the work of the Funders Committee for Civic Participation, even though, of course, that is exactly what it does. I, I would not... It's possible, but I would not take that bet at anything <laughs> but very good odds. <laughs> so... Um, so yes, it's, it, it calls itself, I'll, I'll read from its own about page, it is a Council on Foundations recognized philanthropic affinity group with nearly 90 institutional members and dozens of additional philanthropic colleagues that regularly participate in its programming, close quote. Now, I'll break some of that stuff down. First of all, Council on Foundations, that is the trade group for foundations, essentially. And, and, and it's the trade group for mostly center left, center and left foundations. There are not a lot of conservative foundations that that, that participate in it. That's true, although there are some. And uh, decades ago, uh, some of the grumpier conservative uh, donors who were uh, displeased with how the Council on Foundations was moving left uh, created their own uh, trade group of sorts called the Philanthropy Roundtable, um, where I some years back uh, worked for a bit. Um, and in both cases, the Council on Foundations and the uh, Philanthropy Roundtable, there are, yes, what are called the donor affinity groups. Because in big philanthropy, things break down usually either along geographic lines, so you will have their philanthropic groups like the Southwestern Conference on Foundations, whatever, that will be a bunch of regional states banded together who come to talk about issues in their geographic area. Or you will have the affinity groups where that break down on the subject uh, of the giving. So there's grant makers um, in education, there is Environmental Grant Makers Association and whatnot. Um, the Philanthropy Roundtable has an education reform affinity group. And uh, so it's donors who care about work in a of a particular type, and they will get together and they'll meet and they'll talk right. and, and share and best fun practices and, and all. So fun and Funders Committee for Civic Participation is, is, an, organi is an entity like that for liberal, and it is fairly explicitly liberal, as we'll get into, uh, organizations that are concerned about uh, voting, voter administration policy, voter registration, get out the vote. This is all very interesting for a 501c3 organization that is required to be nonpartisan for tax purposes, but we'll get to that. Um, and uh, and also demograph uh, demographic statistical analysis stuff, the census. Um, and and so all, all these groups are, are, are involved in that and they get together and they talk and they strategize uh, how to advance the, the liberal side of those of those issues. Yes. And we should say, because I, I uh, someday we'll uh, we may commission a poll on this. Uh, I suspect that exceedingly few Americans realize that. Right now, it is perfectly legal for a giant foundation like the Ford Foundation or Soros's Open Society Foundations. It is entirely legal for them to fund, and it is entirely legal for, for C3 public charities to execute voter registration and get out the vote uh, work, as in, that is to say, bussing people to the polls. Right, and, we'd, and we discuss, and, you know, this is all based on the sort of old 
old belief that, you know, oh, you could genuinely nonpartisanly register voters. Yeah, that's true. In, the, the caveat in, is in, it's supposed all of that kind of electoral activity right, is supposed to be nonpartisan. You can't, you can't go around only registering Democrats. However, you can call up your buddies at Catalyst, the liberal demographic and the, well, the top liberal democracy alliance endorsed uh uh, liberal data, demogra- warehouse. Da- data warehouse, demographic analysis, micro-targeting, number-crunching <laughs> firm. That and is used by all sorts of political campaigns. That is used by all sorts of political campaigns. That is used by the trade unions. That is used by a, a great number of, of liberal organizations. Uh, and they can tell you, ah, oh, yes, you should target your registration at this census tract. And, and this, this precinct. precinct, and this census tract, and this state, and this city, and this... So and people with these demographic characteristics. People with these demographic characteristics, this sort of event, you should put up your tent. Uh, I, I suspect that there is an ideological valence to all of this, uh, yes. all of this advice that they might be getting. Yes, abs- absolutely even, the, even though it is not explicitly, go out and register a bunch of Democrats. Yes, that's that's the goal, but not the explicit method. Well, tell us about some of the um, uh, tell us about some of the uh, organizations that make up the Funders Committee for Civic Participation. And by the way, uh, listeners, uh, anyone who wants can get the complete list by going to influencewatch.org and looking up Funders Committee for Civic Participation. Right. Uh, so a couple of the no- a couple of the notables, just to give an idea of that these are left wing guys. Uh, you have Open Society Foundations, which is George Soros's uh, principal ph- philanthropic vehicle. Uh, the Democracy Alliance, liberal donor convening slash affinity group thing. Uh, Tides Foundation, big Democ- uh, big liberal left wing pass through uh, pass through foundation. Carnegie Corporation, Ford Foundation, W. K. Kellogg, three of the uh, Rockef- uh, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Rockefeller Family Fund, the, all the big names of big philanthropy that. Uh, as our uh, Capital Research Center colleague Martin Wooster has uh, written so many times, many of them started out on the right and then got taken over and became far left. Yes. Um, and then the uh, you know other other uh, liberal foundations, JPB, Bauman Family, um, not as large but highly active in helping uh, a certain. Partisan entity. A certain partisan 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 vehicle uh, have an impact on public policy, let's say. Uh, And then, of course, you have some entities that are not 501c3s who are members. Uh, Yes, this must have been the additional philanthropic colleagues, quote unquote, that is referenced uh, on their website. We have the AFL CIO, which is the parent ish organization of a Philip Randolph Institute from from the Ohio case. Uh, we have the National Education Association, the largest government worker union in the country. Uh, and the third largest political donor in hard money since 1990. Yes. Uh, and then you also have uh, the Amalgamated Bank, which is the union, which is owned by the SEIU, which is the number one as of last I checked. Yes, for <laughs> All political cycles from 1990 through 2018, the SEIU, which owns Amalgamated, is number one hard money organizational donor and number three, as we said, the largest teachers union, the NEA. And it will not shock anyone who has watched uh, who has watched or listened to the Influence Notch podcast to know that the AFL-CIO, over that period, 
98% to the Democratic Party, NEA 97. <laughs> yes. Amalgamated, I was looking this up, the Amalgamated Bank in 26, the 2016 cycle uh, was a almost nonpartisan, you can say, because it had a mere 86% of all of its hard money. Although, as we, although as we were discussing in the pre-show, that was not 86-14. That was 86, and then 14 was unclassified. Yes. <laughs> or or, or much of that say, 14 was unclassified. Yes. <laughs> Going to, which means that it went to uh, left-wing PACs and whatnot. Yeah, PACs, that and, are not, PACs and C groups that had that open secrets didn't bother to classify. As Well, it wasn't the actual party. Yeah, it wasn't the actual Republican Party, yes, but uh, or Democrat. Party. Um, well, again, you said that that uh, the Funders Committee is a project uh, or, or, or uh, of this neo-philanthropy, which is itself uh, legally a public charity that does 40 to 50 million dollars a year of business, mostly passing uh, money from entities yeah. uh, from uh, regular donors yeah. and the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation like writes a check for. Large number of money, large amount of money to Neo. Neo decides, you know, with the within the boundaries, within any boundaries that Ford put on it. Uh, okay, you're going to get, you know, you activist group are going to get this much. You activist group are going to get this much. You activist group are going to get this much. Yeah. Well, now, um, and so again, let's uh, let's dig a little deeper into what the funders committee. Uh, what civic participation means for the funders right. committee on civic right. participation. <laughs> My favorite is uh, fr uh, from their website, one of their publications that has this lovely little circle that goes through all of the uh, work that they do. Can you tell us yeah, a bit they, about they, that? Yeah, they, they, they call it integrated voter engagement. And there are seven steps. Uh, we organize and mobilize, they organize and mobilize communities. They register voters, as we discussed earlier. They develop strong leaders. It sounds an awful lot like candidate recruitment to me. Uh, they hold elected officials accountable. Okay, 501c3 public charities are permitted to lobby within limits. Yeah. Uh, Although that's also uh, probably counts uh, oppo research and whatnot uh, to make it yeah. painful for the people who are opposing an election. Right, because otherwise, otherwise one of those strong leaders might uh, all of a sudden magically appear in an election. Yes. Uh, they engage and educate the electorate. Okay, that sounds like advocacy, which I guess 501c3s can do some advocacy. Get out the vote. That's an interesting one. And achieve policy impact. <laughs> yes, which is to say, elect people and pass laws. Elect people and pass laws seems to be the uh, what you would actually call this if you were, say, a layman. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, can you give us an example of some of the integrated voter engagement efforts where they have seen some success? So in Colorado, there's a, an advocacy group called the Colorado Progressive Coalition, or there, or there was in the late 2000s, and they uh, employed the Funders Committee's Integrated Voter Engagement Program, and they did it to raise the minimum wage, which is a big labor union priority, uh, suspend what Colorado Colorado's law, TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which places caps on government spending and caps on government revenue, uh, and then also to defeat uh, an initiative measure to curtail the use of ethnic preferences and things like uh, government contracting and university admissions. Uh, so again, these are, uh, I guess that would be achieving policy impact. Now, I will, I will note, for fairness, 501c3s are allowed to engage in ballot measure campaigns. It's called grassroots lobbying. Uh, but the... 
there's definitely a lot of achieving policy impact in in uh, funders committee's activities. Yes, and it's this is probably not the kind of activity that would leap to mind when a Washington Post reader goes through his editorial page and sees people calling for increased civic participation. Well, knowing the, knowing the demographics of Washington Post readers, actually, it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Well, uh, okay. Well, it is often the case, of course, that, uh, that there are uh, right-wing analogies for left-wing type things. So uh, tell us if there are anything that leaps to right, mind so, as a right-wing. Right, yeah. We've, we've, we discussed uh, how Philanthropy Roundtable kind of is a counterpart to the Council on Foundations. So for a, a, donor a big donor convening like Funders Committee, there, there probably isn't a direct analog. There is the, the seminar network, formerly the Koch Seminar Network, because it's uh, convened by Charles and, until he retires soon, uh, David Koch. Um, the, and, you know, they obviously are engaged in the public policy process. We discussed that, I think it was episode nine, when we discussed the, the Kochs versus Soros. Um, the, but one thing the right of center world does much differently than the left of center world is that voter registration and get out the vote generally aren't done through 501c3s. Uh, I am not aware of a conservative organization that does uh, get out the vote with a 501c3. Uh, yeah, you have, nor, you, have told, you have told me that you are not either. Yep. And, and more importantly, I, would, I, I absolutely know because I have asked them, uh, the, the big foundation donors on the right, like the Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee, the Scaife Foundation in Pittsburgh, um, Searle Freedom Trust, uh, and whatnot. I have. I don't know of anybody like that that has ever fu uh, directly funded voter registration, much less get out the vote. Um, and I, in fact, when I've asked questions of them, it's so much not something they would dream of that they weren't. They had to stop and think. Well, is would it even be legal under right. any circumstances right. for could, us could to do we, that? Could we even do that? Yeah, uh, and and, and, we're, I, and and we're sure that that. Uh, that has never entered their minds. Uh, the fact that that has never entered their minds has nothing to do with recent activities by the by the Internal Revenue Service uh, that may have suggest may have subjected uh, right of center nonprofit activities to additional scrutiny that was not granted to left of center nonprofit activities. Yes, Lois Lerner, <laughs> call your office. Well, I, on that score, by the way, this is something that I would point out: the the atrocious IRS scandal um, where Lois Lerner and and company. Uh, prevented for, over the course of years hundreds of conservative uh, groups asking for nonprofit status from and they the, openly uh, admitted they openly admitted this for the record. Yes, we know they, about the IRS scandal because Lois Lerner planted a question in a press conference so that she could apologize for it before it came out. <laughs> yes, and then she had to take the fifth. Um, I will say, in typical uh, pathetic Republican Party fashion, they, they did incredibly little to capitalize on all this. Um, uh, had the parties been reversed in, in the story, um, I shudder to think about uh, the, the pain and agony that would have been endured by, by such mis the, the perpetrators of such misdeeds. But here's the point I would make, that of the roughly 300 conservative groups that were kept out of the 2012 presidential election by the I've never had a scandal Barack Obama, 
um, only one of them, I believe, was actually a- applying to be a C3. Out of those 300, one, uh, I believe it was, trying to be a C3. Right. All the rest were trying to be C4s, which, which are, are allowed which do to have, bust which people do have, polls and register. Lot, and which do rest. have much broader remit for things like get out the vote. Yes. Uh, so not quite moral equivalence uh, in all this sort of thing. Well, um, the... Uh, uh, so the bottom line is you aren't entirely buying the notion of nonpartisan civic participation, whether it's the Supreme Court case just decided or the Funders Committee for right. civic participation. Right. Now, I, I, don't, be- I, I don't believe there is such a thing as nonpartisan civic participation, uh, whether it's liberal or conservative. Um, the, there's obvious, you, you participate in civic life because you have a desired end to civic life. Um, and... You know, again, we operate in under a tax regime where this uh, legal fiction of nonpartisan of nonpartisan activism, which I mean, it binds Capital Research Center, uh, the um, continue you know somehow continues to exist. Um, but I, I think I think it's clearly demonstrated that something like the Funders Committee, uh, you know, it's all liberal. It's all liberal organizations. It's liberal organizations with very close ties to the Institutional Democratic Party, the Democracy Alliance, the, uh, the AFL-CIO, the National Education Association, uh, and they're doing the stuff that political parties used to do before uh, John McCain and Russ Feingold basically dissolved them in two thousand and two. Yes, uh, that, that's a great. I, that's an excellent point to make. That. Um, in a, it, this sort of thing happens with the left's policy efforts uh, with some frequency, it seems to me, that they claim to be aiming at one thing and they actually achieve something quite different. The, Campaign finance reform was supposed to clean up the parties. It was, it, was supposed to, it was supposed to clean up the parties. It was supposed to reduce the influence of major donors uh, giving what was called soft money, which was money that was given for things like party building, things like get out the vote, voter registration, <laughs> This all sounds familiar, right? Um, and instead, what end, what ended up happening, uh, partly, now a lot of this happened before Citizens United, which the left, of course, says is the root of all evil, uh, but it kind of accelerated afterward. It kind of accelerated afterwards that actually it just moved all that institution building outside the political parties. And I think the result that we can clearly see is the nasty polarization that we have in political life right now. Yes, it's, it would be much better for the country, almost certainly, if the parties actually had much stronger roles in elections than the rest. I mean, my personal favorite is the insanity that it is illegal for me, John Q. nominee, to coordinate efforts with my own political party. Now, that's obviously insane. And it, and it certainly works to polarization because it destroys the branding function it destroys, of parties. It destroys the branding function. It destroys the ability of the party to be an advocate for itself and for its own brand. And to advocate, I mean, again, we have... Prim, you know, we have primary elections. You know, most most people vote on a signal, and that signal is a, na- is a letter after a name. I vote, you know, you vote for John Q. Republican or Jane D. Democrat, and doesn't matter, you know, and you just vote the R or the D. Uh, no shame in this, because most people have, most people do not do what we do for a living and have real lives and don't pay attention to politics 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, which these days seems quite healthy. Um, 
But then in a primary election, you know, you have John D. Republican and John Q. Republican and John C. Republican. And how do you decide? Uh, and the the inability of parties to advocate, the inability of parties to even meaningfully influence the choice of their nominees, uh, all again created by by to a, McCain Feingold and to a lesser extent the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1974. Um, th- you know, it it creates the situation where it's all name ID and active and activist energy, and whether you can get an outside outside rich guy or an outside rich special interest group like a trade union to drop a bunch of money arguing on your behalf. I would add only one thing, which is in the the. The supreme irony of it all, since the the most evil thing in politics was supposedly rich guys because they were having too much influence in politics, you left out one other way that you get yourself to be the nominee of uh, be a rich election, guy, be a rich which guy. is be, be a rich guy. guy, be a rich yes. guy. <laughs> so in both political parties, Democrats and Republicans, you have an enormous upsurge in really rich guys running the- because they don't have the ridiculous McCain-Feingold restrictions. Well, they don't even have the federal. They don't even have the Federal Election Campaign Act restrictions. Uh, so, uh, God have mercy on you if you are a resident of the state of Illinois, because you not only have one rich guy running for your for governor of your state, you have two <laughs> yes. running against each other. You're you will probably not be able to watch television because of all the attack ads. <laughs> yes. So once again. Uh, people whose thinking is upside down end up producing the opposite of what they say they're going to give you through their wonderful reform the, laws. The law, the law of un, un, law of unintended consequences strikes again. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, that's our show for this week. If you are listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, you should know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays. Uh, it's on both Facebook Live and YouTube, and you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we want to encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.